Cana or Cana, Cana, Kfar Cana, the village of Cana or Cana. It's a real place. I was there, and maybe some of you have been there as well. Uh, when we read about the event that happened there, we're not reading mythology or fables. Uh, it was a real event that took place at a real place. It was a miraculous event that took place at Cana, and you're familiar with it. Uh, but it wasn't a showy kind of a thing. It was a miracle with a message. And our purpose tonight is to discover what that message is. So would you turn with me to John chapter 2? That's where we find this astounding event recorded for us down to this very day. John chapter 2 is about a wedding. And uh, I use this as the text at almost every wedding I officiate uh, at. Uh, and that's because I'm lazy and don't want to study anything else. But also, it's just so rich and uh, pregnant with meaning, uh, I, I don't want to, to um, uh, choose another text. Uh, you'll see about this wedding at Cana as we read. Look, John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, so that obligates you to ask the question, the third day after what? I must tell you, uh, theologians and scholars wrangle over this. There are many different, uh, different opinions that are offered. Some say this is the third day after what we previously read, and that is the um, a conversion of Nathaniel and uh, Philip to the Lord Jesus Christ. Three days after that came this. Others say, no, that's it. It's three days after the Lord's work of immersion or, or baptism. Whenever it was that that was completed, then this event took place. I don't know what the answer uh, is. I do know within a week after those events, this event took place. On the third day, it says, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. So Cana is uh, eight miles north of Nazareth. And if you look to the screen, I think you'll see a map of Cana uh, or, or of the Holy Land coming up, and this will give you an idea of what we're talking about. Can you see Cana located there? So uh, you see that body of water on the right, that's the Sea of Galilee, and on the left, that body of water is the Mediterranean, just to give you some mooring points. And so if you go up north, you, you, you'll be in Lebanon, and then just down from Lebanon, not too far, is this uh, place called Cana of Galilee, again, just a few miles north of uh, Nazareth. So on the third day, there was a wedding in this place, in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus, what's her name? Yeah, that's Mary. And uh, not to be a stickler for, for details, uh, her real name is Miriam, M Miriam, because we Jews, Mary is not a common name, and that that is not actually her biblical name. Her name is, is Miriam, and you may be wondering, well, then how did we get Mary? But that's a discussion for, for uh, another time. But for now, let's just go with the flow. And though she's Miriam, we will call her Mary. Uh, and so the mother of Jesus, Mary, was there. And so this begs the question, where's Joseph? Why is he not mentioned? And it's possible that he's absent from the scene at this point because he's really absent from, from the scene. He may have passed away at this particular point. So we know 
uh, that the mother of the Lord, Mary, was at this wedding. In verse 2, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Um, I find it fascinating that the Lord Jesus was often invited uh, to, in Hebrew, we call the word simcha. It's a celebration. He was often invited to a simcha, a celebration. But never be reluctant, I hope you're not reluctant, to invite the Lord Jesus to draw near to you even during um, some not-so-good times in life. He's willing to come and celebrate for sure, but he's also willing to bear with you during times of grief and loss and pain as well. So uh, the Lord and his disciples are invited to this wedding, and in verse 3, when the wine ran out, now I'm mentioning the word wine, and many things could be uh, said about it, uh, but that would uh, distract us from the real meaning, the central meaning of what I want to talk to you about tonight. It has nothing to do with wine, so don't get distracted by that, could I just say right now, uh, uh, the wine that we read about in the Bible uh, is not at all like the wine that is uh, so frequently consumed today. Uh, it, it's apples and bananas, and that's a, a topic for another conversation. But uh, just so that you don't feel robbed and cut short, uh, today I had an opportunity to listen to a message our pastor gave here uh, some, some years ago, I don't remember how long, eight or, or maybe ten years ago, I, I don't recall. It was during a series the pastor was giving called The Untouchables. And those are on subjects uh, for which there's some controversy. And one of them is the one addressed here. It's the biblical case for total abstinence. And if, if that word is new to you, total abstinence, it, it means the biblical case for not partaking of any alcoholic beverages whatsoever. So I had the, uh, I mentioned to the pastor that we'll be dealing with this event, John chapter 2 tonight, and uh, what the Lord did here at Cana, and so he offered this to me, and I had the privilege of listening uh, to it today, and I want to commend it to you. It would be worth your time. Uh, It's available in the bookstore, in the bookstore, for a small uh, fee, and uh, you you can bill the pastor. You you know, you, you you just tell them, bill the pastor. See, he does that to me all the time. So, so I'm returning the favor. Uh, in, in truth, it's, it only lasts about 30 or 35 minutes, and it's a very strong biblical case for the position of total abstinence, both from scriptures and just logic and reason. And there's nothing wrong with some sanctified logic as well. So anyway, this is available even tonight in the bookstore if you would like to go by and help yourself to it. So when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And she's sort of interfering because, well, she's a Jewish mother and that's just the way it is. And so here's the deal. Jewish weddings, did you know this? The celebration thereof often lasted a week, at least a week. And guests would be coming and going, be a steady flow of folks. As a result, it was necessary for the groom. It's the groom's responsibility to make sure there would be an adequate supply of food and wine. In fact, it would be such a major breach of etiquette if either commodity was in short supply. Do you know you could be brought up on legal charges? You could actually be fined if when the guests arrived there was inadequate food or wine. So this is kind of serious, and Mary was aware of it. Uh, So she brings this up to the Lord, Jesus. And in verse 4, he said to her, woman, 
You know, some people object to that. They say he was so cutting and so insulting. No, let's not impose our way of thinking on the 2,000-year-old text. Um, the, the essence of the translation is a little more like, dear lady, or um, uh, dear woman. That, that's essentially what he said. Dear woman, what does that have to do with us my hour, he said, has not yet come. Uh, he, what did he mean? His hour for what? What specific time was he speaking of? I think he was speaking of the time for his very public uh, revelation of himself as Messiah. It had not yet come, you say. Why? Well, because he was living by a schedule of events determined for him by his heavenly father and not uh, by his very earthly mother. And so Mary undoubtedly was excited about her son. And again, she was a Jewish mother, and uh, she loved him and, and all the rest, and she's going to have to transition from uh, seeing him to be her son only uh, to the time when she sees him to be her Lord. And so in verse 5, uh, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Uh, boy, that would be a good thing to put on a bumper sticker or on a, a T-shirt. If there's a formula for success in life, that's it. Whatever he says to you to do, just, just do it. Just, just do it. Uh, we're thinking a lot about what the Lord requires of us, and sometimes we're thinking ourselves out of flat-out obedience uh, to the one who really knows best and is getting us into trouble. So, so Mary, in making this statement, is essentially revealing her growing capacity to submit to the lordship of her son, even though at this point she doesn't have full comprehension of whom he is and all that he is saying. Now, in verse 6, it says there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. The text says they were set there for the Jewish custom of purification. And you would wonder, you would say, John, who's writing this, why did you have to put that explanatory note in there? Your Jewish readers would know exactly why those water pots were there. But that's the point. The Jewish readers would, but John's audience consisted of Jews and Gentiles. And so this is an explanatory note for his Gentile Readers. He's explaining that these six stone water pots are there. Uh, uh, they're not there for drinking water. No, no, no. They're there for ceremonial cleansing. It was a Jewish custom, says John, of purification. And here, by the way, is what they may have looked like. Take a look at this uh, stone. It's a stone jar found from that era. So you can see it could hold, as it says, about 20 or 30 uh, gallons of water or, or wine. Folks, they were used for ceremonial washing of hands before and after meals, not for drinking, and not even for, for hygiene. Uh, the intent here was not to remove germs or bacteria. No, it was for ceremonial uh, cleansing. The participant, even before the party, would come, see the stone water parts, and be hauntingly reminded of his or her uncleanness. Uh, that person would realize, I am unholy and Almighty God is different. 
He's holy. They would realize that they have fallen short and they need something to cleanse them from sin. This would be a symbol and a haunting reminder of the fact that their inherent nature was to be in the state of uncleanness before almighty incorruptible God. And so they would pause so as to ceremonially cleanse themselves. They essentially would be pausing and asking on the inside, what can wash away my sins? That's essentially what they would be indicating in so doing. And if we were there, we would shout out to them, certainly not the contents of those jars. And there were many regulations that the rabbis came up with with regard to ceremonial cleansing of of one's hands. There's something called the Mishnah. The Mishnah is the earliest codification or writing of the Jewish oral law. So uh, we Jews have traditions in addition to the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai. God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Actually, we see 613 commandments. But in addition, the rabbis believe God whispered into the ear of Moses the oral law. It's never been written down until the time when it was written down. And that's called... That's called the Mishnah. Well, one of the books in the Mishnah um, contains 126 chapters. One of, the, one of the books in the Mishnah. 126 chapters. And all of those words and chapters and paragraphs have to do with regulations concerning the ceremonial washing of hands and feet and other parts of one's body. Folks, Judaism has become a religion Uh, that emphasizes, even in the Lord's day, external cleansing and rituals. But the heart of the one uh, conscientiously participating in these religious rituals remains unchanged. The water can only deal with the surface of one's being, not the internal uh, nature. And so the text tells us stone water pots were used for ceremonial cleansing. See, wine... And drinking water would normally be stored in much less expensive, cheaper clay jars. But they were not used here. Uh, They were not suitable for ceremonial cleansing. They had to be stone water pots like the one you saw earlier. And down to this very day, this practice of ritual cleansing and the regulations uh, associated with it continues. So Jewish law today prescribes ceremonial cleansing, uh, hand washing for all kinds of events, like uh, you have to wash your hands when you wake up from sleep. You have to wash your hands before prayer. You have to wash your hands when you touch sweat on your body or when you cut uh, your fingernails. You have to wash your hands when you leave the bathroom. You have to wash your hands when you leave a cemetery. You have to wash your hands before a meal. You have to wash your hands after a meal. Again, none of these things are for hygienic purposes. They're all for ceremonial cleansing. Can you see how Jewish life is infused with this horrific message? You are in a state of uncleanness. You're not right with God. And all of this water ritualization is a stark reminder to you that, that you're an unclean person. And so what would happen is that the participant would take a cup and it would contain, listen to this, uh, one-fourth of a log, L-O-G, which is a liquid measurement equal in volume to one and a half medium-sized eggs. Yep. That's one of the stipulations in the Mishnah. 
That's how much water has to be used. Our rabbis have a lot of time on their hands. So they came up with this deal. The authorized volume of water has to be sufficient to displace one and a half medium-sized eggs. And so the participant would take the cup and first pour out its contents first over his right hand and then over his left, and he would do this two or three times according to which rabbinical school you attach yourself to. And Well, here's a picture of a man doing this very thing. Let's give you an example. You see, he's taking a cup, and uh, there's no soap involved or anything like that. That's, that's different cleansing. This is just a symbolic cleansing of one's external nature as an indication of one's need for cleansing on the, on the inside. And everybody participates because everybody is unclean. In fact, even young kids do. So take a look at the, this one, and you'll see some young, young boys. See, they're trained early on. They're doing the, the same thing. It's ritual cleansing down to this very day. In fact, when people go to pray at the Western Wall, perhaps you refer to it as the Wailing Wall. A number of you have been there. In fact, some of us returned from there just recently. When you go to the Western Wall, before you go there to pray, you have to ceremonially cleanse your hands. In fact, take a look at this uh, next photo. So there's an Orthodox Jewish man, you can see. And you have these fountains there where he can cleanse his hands before now he's going to continue to walk down that um, uh, pathway and make his way to the holiest site in Judaism, the Western Wall, there to pray. But first he's cleansing his hands, just as it has been done even from the biblical times as we're reading. All right. So now back to verse 7 in the text. Jesus said to them, "Uh, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And so they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, wow, no fanfare, no dramatics, just quickly a transformation. And he didn't know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And then when the people have drunk freely, see the effects of it all would compromise your taste buds. So when that's happened, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And and verse 11 says, this beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the first of the Lord's 35 recorded miracles in the Bible. He probably performed many other Uh, miracles, but uh, about 35, 36, depending on your counting, are recorded for us. This is the first. Now, since, as the text says, this was the beginning of his miraculous signs, could, could I suggest to you, it is therefore unlikely that he performed miracles as a child. Uh, The reason why I say that is that there are many fanciful books on the bookstores of even Christian Uh, on the shelves of even Christian bookstores, um, which are speculative notions of how uh, the Lord, even as a young child, performed these uh, dramatic miracles. Can I tell you, though that's interesting and stimulates our thinking and imagination, there's not one bit of biblical basis for it. This beginning of his signs, not as a child, but as an adult. I I offer this to you as a word of caution. 
uh, please don't get bored with the contents of the Bible so that you have to move past to some man or woman's speculative um, um, book about things in the Bible. Don't be doing that, because I'm telling you, you're on very unsafe ground when you do that. The text tells us this is the beginning uh, of the Lord's miraculous, miraculous signs. That's what it says. And it says, and his disciples believed in him. Wait a second. They're disciples. Didn't they already believe in him? Well, they did. They already trust him, and in fact, they are, they are following him. But folks, they're learning. They're learning more and more about him every day. Are you? Am I? I mean, we're never finished. We come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an event. We're born anew. But then we walk with him, and we grow And he amazes us as he reveals more and more of his character, the fullness of his his deity. And so uh, this particular sign did not create their faith. It confirmed their faith. Notice John uses the word sign. That's probably the word in most of your translations. It ought to be. He uses the word sign. It's a very special word. It means something miraculous that... uh, points us beyond the miracle to a very significant message. So a sign is a miracle with a message. So to stop at the sign is to stop short. (laughs) It's just to get our attention to point us to a, a more weighty, lofty, and significant truth. So what is the message of this particular miracle? That is to say, the transformation of water to wine. What greater truth is this sign attesting to? I think it's this. You you can think about it. Tell me if you agree with this. What can wash away one's sin? Folks, not all the ritual, not all the religious traditions in the world can do it. What can wash away my sin? You got it. Sing it. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? What's the answer? Nothing. Oh, precious. What did it do? That makes me. No other. Say it again. Mm. Now, I'm telling you, that's the message of this miracle. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now, how do I, how do I get that? In transforming water to wine, uh, the Lord is showing that he came to offer cleansing from sin that the Jewish religious system could not. The water in those stone water pots represented uh, the old covenant and uh, uh, the Jewish religion of good deeds and mitzvot and uh, religious rituals. Now they are transformed into an entirely different substance, wine, and these two substances are juxtaposed. There's a contrast between the water of purification representing Jewish religious ritual and the wine, which represents something entirely different. The Lord's point is to persuade folks that the water of Judaism or any ism 
cannot accomplish what the wine of Jesus could do. What then is the wine of Jesus? Please don't get stuck on wine as the beverage. That's not the point here at all. What is the good wine? Remember, uh, we're told that the, the water, the contents of these stone water pots was transformed to good wine. What is the good wine? I think it represents the Lord's blood. So, uh, tell you how I get this. Undoubtedly, at this time, the Lord's followers did not have full understanding of what he was about. But there came a time when he celebrated his last meal with them. We refer to it as the Last Supper, or we Jews refer to it as Pesach. Pesach, Passover. That was the Last Supper meal, Passover. During the Passover meal, at a certain point in the meal, right on time, the Lord uh, lifted up, elevated a cup, and said, this cup is poured out for you, and it is the new covenant in my blood. You see, he took the Passover wine and attached an entirely different meaning to it. He said, this cup, it's poured out for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. What then is the message of this miracle at Cana? It is that the Lord Jesus is replacing the old covenant with a new and better one. In fact, this new covenant, this better, far better wine, was anticipated centuries before the time of Christ by Jewish prophets like Jeremiah. Listen, for instance, to what God said through Jeremiah in chapter 31, beginning in verse 31 of Jeremiah. God speaks. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a, here it is, new covenant. Did you know the old covenant prophesied the new covenant? There it is. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out from the land of Egypt. That's a covenant God established on Mount Sinai with Moses. God said, no, there'll come a time when I will inaugurate a new covenant. It will not be like that covenant, the one I made with their fathers in the day I led them out of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. That's the newness of the new covenant. The old covenant, beautiful reflection of the morals and ethics of Almighty God could not pierce the darkness of my sin-sick heart. It was inscribed on tablets of stone. That's the old covenant, but the new covenant is an inscription of God's ways on the tablets of my heart and yours. This has happened to you if you're a Christian, has it not? There's been a renovation of your life on the inside. It's not an external change alone. Things are different for you on the inside. This is the covenant I'll make, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God. They'll be my people. Personal relationship. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Would I offend you if I told you the new covenant was made by God with the Jews? Would I offend you? Because you probably thought it's for you. It is for you by faith. 
It's principally and originally for the Jews. But it is open to anyone who by faith says, Oh God, my hands are unclean as well. And all of my efforts to provide cleansing for my uh, irreversible sense of uncleanness, all the good deeds, all the promises, all the acts of charity, all the philanthropic and humanitarian efforts, all the religious, uh, uh, religiosity, all my adherence to religious tradition, it's not working. Oh God, I still have a sin-sick heart. Will you change me from the inside? Will you grant me this kind of personal relationship? And Jesus said, I will. And that's the new wine, you see. It's the new wine ushered in through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so at Cana, uh, the Lord changed. It's not about water to wine. No, no. The Lord was through that miracle showing us that what he really changed is the old covenant water into new covenant wine. And the Lord did this, isn't this interesting, at a wedding of all places. He could have done it in a football stadium. I don't know, in a library. He could have done it in a church service. He didn't. He performed his first miracle, this very strategic one, this act of transformation from old to new. He did it at a wedding. How very fitting. Because a wedding is a time of union, isn't it? And celebration. Here comes the bride. She's been invited to participate by the bridegroom. Isn't that true? He proposed to her. He wooed her. Uh, He courted her. He wanted to conjure up in her an interest in him. He saw her. He loved her. He he, he loved her so much, in fact, that he probably uh, looked past some of her flaws, defects, and failings. He envisioned that he could be in a bond with this woman in spite of herself forevermore. Uh, She had many suitors. He felt he was the best suited for her. He just knew their partnership would be the best, and he wanted to enter into it and make it permanent and last forever. And so he, he did what he could to persuade her she could entrust herself to him. He would provide for her. He would protect her. He would never leave her or forsake her. He would be faithful to her. He would have eyes only only for her. He would not look about for a better deal. And well, the day come when when he, he succeeded in persuading her this. Will you marry me? said he. And then he waited because now the power is with her. She could say yes. And she could just as easily say no. And so he waited to see what her response would be. He didn't exploit her. He didn't impose himself on her. How could it be an act of love if he obligated her to say yes? So he didn't. He just very gentlemanly and gently, he he invited her into union, uh, into covenant. And he said, "Will will you marry me? And she said, I will. I do. I'm yours. And they celebrated the event publicly. That's one of the biblical definitions of marriage. It's publicly witnessed. And so the guests came together for this celebration because it's a unique kind of a bond. You can't be in halfway. She's putting all her eggs in one basket. She's saying, I am yours and you are mine and nothing 
dare separate us from this day forward. There's a measure of risk involved. She can't proceed in the future entirely. She didn't have that kind of clear vision, but somehow she felt like she had enough reason to entrust herself to him. She doesn't know where he would lead her, where they would live, would they move and all. She didn't have all this figured out, but there was something that passed full comprehension. There was, a, there was confidence in him. Uh, she believed his words. Somehow he was able to back them up. Somehow he was able to win her trust and confidence. There was a measure of faith involved. It wasn't blind faith. She just didn't jump into this. She had a kind of an evidentiary basis to, to answer in the affirmative when he, when he gave the invitation. You see what I mean? And she had enough reason, though she didn't have full comprehension, to know, I, I feel like I can entrust myself to him. I feel like he has his best, my best interests at heart. And so she said, yes, I, I do. And now it's, now it's wedding. Now it's wedding time. And everyone is gathered together. It's this time of union and coming together. It's this time of entering into a brand new relationship. It's deeply personal. In fact, nobody would dare enter into it, get in the way or mess it up. Oh, no. Witnessed by many, but participated in by the bride and the bridegroom alone. And it's at this time, during this event, when the Lord um, manifested his first miracle again, a, a miracle with a message. And the message is this. You see this beautiful union between man and wife, husband and wife? You see it. You understand it. It's an earthly metaphor of my willingness to enter into that same kind of marital bond with you. Would you take me as your heavenly husband? For I invite you into relationship with me as my bride. That's the analogy the Lord used. He could use the analogy of master-slave, commanding general, soldier, CEO and employee. <clears throat> he used this illustration of husband and wife, for we could all relate to it. We have a value, even in our corrupt and sin-sick society, on the specialness of marriage. And that's the means by which the Lord announces to us, that's what I want for you and me. Would you participate? You could say no. But why would you walk away from unconditional love? Why? No, you don't have full understanding of me, says the Lord. I know you don't know where this relationship, where I will lead you. I know I'm asking you to manifest a level of trust in me, but I've given you enough reason to do it. I'm not asking you to make a blind leap I'm asking you to base your decision on what you know in your heart about me. I'm the one who offered his life for you. Will you say yes to my invitation? And so at the wedding in Cana, the Lord is saying essentially to us, will you be part of the bride of Christ? Will you? Have you? Will you tonight if you haven't? Will you say yes to Jesus? 
Or will you talk him out of it? Will you say, oh, you don't know me. If you did, you would not be inviting me into intimacy with you. At the risk of offending you, do you realize who you're talking to? You're talking to Almighty God who has no beginning nor any end. You're talking to your maker. You're talking to the one who is transcendent. He is the great beyond, but he has come near. He knows everything about you. He knows your thoughts. He knows your words before you declare them. In fact, in his book is inscribed every day of your life before you have even lived it. Jesus knows you fully. Don't talk him out of this invitation. You will not succeed. He says, I know your defects. I know your failings. I know your sin. In fact, you are replete with sin. You're the one who can't pass by the stone water pots because you are in constant need of cleansing. I know you. I love you This is my favorite word in the world. Anyway, will you say yes to my invitation? Can you see this is not a religious thing, a denominational thing, a church thing? This is a marital thing. Will you be wedded by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you let him take the lead? Will you let him provide? Will you let him come near? Will you let him protect? Will you let him, figuratively speaking, wrap his arms around you? That's his invitation. So at Cana, the Lord changed everything. Under the old covenant, we couldn't have this intimacy with him. Something is in the way. It's our own sin. And he is holy. And so, so sin separates us from him. Under the old covenant, sin is a barrier. Under the new covenant, under the new and better wine of the new covenant, Jesus' blood washes away our sin. It's his shed blood. It's the wine of his shed blood that washed away our sins, which otherwise would separate us from him. And just as he converted water to wine, he can convert a separated sinner into a fully cleansed saint. Do you know that? Do you know that? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What do you mean? I mean, says Paul, the old (laughs) has passed away. The new wine has come. He's a transformer. As he transformed water to wine, he can transform sinner to saint. And he yearns to do that very thing. So the Jewish water of purification had to be constantly applied, but the cleansing power of Jesus' blood makes us clean once and for all. I ask you, what can wash away our sin? What's your answer? Look at bears repeating in songs. Let's sing it again. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood. 
See, that's, that's the message of the miracle at Cana of Galilee. Could I ask you this as we draw to a close? Does your Bible say six stone water pots or does it say five? Does it say eight? So all your Bibles say six? Hmm. Do you believe that's arbitrary, that it says six stone water pots? Not any other number? I don't think there's any fat in the Bible. I don't think there's any extraneous material. I think it means something. Could I read this into it and uh, permit me to share with you what I think it means? And if you think I'm out to lunch, um, well, I don't have to invite you to tell me so. You, you, you will do so. <laughs> and you ought to do so. But let me tell you this. Uh, when God did the work of creation, physical creation. How many days did it take? And then what did he do? Hmm. Six days. Six stone water pots. I think it represents the, uh, the whole Jewish religious system and anybody, even a non-Jew's efforts to work so as to win favor with God. I think God is saying the six stone water pots is over. Move past it to the new wine of new covenant rest. Just as almighty God rested from his physical creation after six days of activity to create the world, I think he's inviting us to enter into spiritual rest. And so the book of Hebrews says, you know what it says? Labor so as to enter into Sabbath rest. It's not a day. It's a lifestyle. Folks, the six stone water pots are over. And now we can rest from any human exertion of effort to try to persuade God to forgive us. He has. To try to persuade God to have us. He will. To try to persuade God to cleanse us. He has. Now rest. That's what he says. Rest. It's the new wine of Jesus' blood that can do what the water of religious ritual can never do. Have you been washed in the blood? In the precious blood of the Lamb. Do you know that one? We used to sing it. Are you washed in the blood? It's very, very important. The blood of Jesus, that's the new wine of the new covenant. It's the new wine of Jesus' blood that can make us clean. And if you have been washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus, you're ready for the wedding party to come. Did you notice? Before they could enter into the celebration of the wedding, first they had to be cleansed. Did you notice that? And then it was party time. You cannot enter into a celebratory relationship with holy God unless you have been cleansed first. Did you know that? You cannot have the audacity to be on familiar terms with the otherwise unapproachably holy God who is a consuming fire. People today refer to him as the big guy upstairs. <gasps> the co-pilot. <gasps> We would burn up in his presence 
because the comparison of our unholiness in the presence of his holiness would devour us. Cleansing must take place before we can be on familiar terms with holy God. Before we can call him daddy and papa. Before we can charge into the throne room of grace and crawl up on his lap, figuratively speaking. Before we can speak to him in places as ordinary as a vehicle, a closet, (laughs) a building like this. How dare you and I think we could be, have such familiar and easy access to an otherwise unapproachably holy God. No, before the rejoicing exaltation, before the wine of a safe relationship with a holy God, there must come, there must come cleansing, don't you see? And Jesus, the bridegroom, said, I offered my blood to cleanse you. So that once having by faith applied it to your life, you could enter into what the Bible refers to as the marriage supper of the Lamb. So this John, whose book we're now reading, this very human author of this book, John, you know he wrote more in the Bible? He wrote even the last book in the Bible. This same John wrote the book we call Revelation. The book of Revelation in it. John said this in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. He said, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And then he said in verse 9, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Have you been invited? Have you heard the Lord's invitation? What has been your response? Did you RSVP? Did you say, thank you for your gracious invitation? I'm busy on that occasion. I can't make it. I can't afford a tuxedo. It isn't like that. It's an invitation without condition. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Would you think I'm overstepping my ground if I made the statement, Jesus invites every person here to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus wants every person here to accept his invitation. Jesus wants every person here to be washed in his blood, made clean, finish the work of trying to work for his favor, entering into a Sabbath rest, the likes of which you could never otherwise have, and thus being cleansed and ready for party time. Folks, I'm going to tell you something that's going to get us through the days ahead of it. We're we're waiting with such anticipation for November 9th. Don't do that. Can I tell you something? It's not that big a deal. This is the big deal. This is the overarching milestone we ought to be focused on. When all this stuff, earthly stuff, is said and done. The issue is, have you said yes 
to the bridegroom's invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Don't miss out on it. Don't miss out on it. And whatever else may be an intervening event before that happens, who cares if we're in a love relationship with transcendent deity who sits on the throne who uses all circumstances for our good and his glory. Nobody is a better marital partner than the Lord Jesus Christ who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. The last book of the Bible gives the most grand invitation in all of Scripture and human history. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Before the party must come the cleansing. And the bridegroom provided that as well. Just as the groom at Cana was responsible for providing all of the elements in that wedding celebration. Nothing remains to be done except for you. To say, yes, Lord Jesus, take me in, take me up, (laughs) take me into the wine of the new covenant. Change me from the inside out. Inscribe your laws on my heart. Put you in me so that I live differently than I ever lived. I may come from a Catholic background, a Jewish background, a Muslim background. It doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Now you say, oh, God, I, 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 I don't want religion. I, I want that personal relationship. I want the wine of the new covenant. Well, you transform me just as you transformed water to wine. And just as no loving bridegroom would dare impose himself upon his prospective bride, neither will the Lord Jesus, who's all-powerful, impose himself on you or I. He simply says, will you marry me? What is your answer? If the answer is no, then I ask you the question, what can possibly wash away your sin? What alternative do you have? Could you please tell me? Uh, We here believe that the biblical answer is an easy one. In fact, it's been put to song for our last time. Let's sing it. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing 